This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. We live in a society that doesn't like to apologize for the wrongs that have been done to minority communities. Reparations is the ultimate apology. Are we going to do better by the next group of people who get brought up on charges when the evidence looks a little thin? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Laws are meant to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. But what happens when a court gets it wrong? More than three quarters of a century ago, in a small town in Alabama, the court got it all wrong. How does society make it right? Ashley Cleek has the story. This is your pardon, your pardon. I have no hate. Clarence Norris Jr.'s father was always a great mystery. His mother talked about him sometimes, and Norris thought about his father a lot. You know, growing up as a kid, you know, sometimes when things are bad, you feel, why, why, why did my father leave me? Why is he here, or, you know? But because, you know, it was always darkness to me mentally before his knowing anything about him. Norris lives in Georgia and is self-employed as a truck driver. We meet at a mall in Macon, Georgia, and sit awkwardly in rocking chairs, sipping lemonade. Lemonade or sweet tea? That doesn't look like sweet tea. Well, I, I changed the lemonade. Some people put a pound of sugar into their tea. So. Norris is kind, but guarded. He says he doesn't trust people easily. And the past few years have brought Norris face to face with the difficult story of his father. It started a few years back when Norris was visiting family in his mom's hometown. There, he met a cousin. He talked to me and he said, you know, your father had a history I'm sure you don't know about. He told Norris that his father was one of the nine Scottsboro boys, wrongly convicted of raping two white women in Alabama in 1931. A few months later, a relative sent Norris a PBS documentary about the Scottsboro Boys. It was the first time Norris saw a picture of his father or heard his voice. And I think all people accused of things which didn't commit. You know, that was a moment. That was a moment, you know, because I'd never seen him, you know. And so the documentary just discussed all of, uh, you know, what happened. What happened is one of the biggest trials of the century. The case sparked protests from New York to Havana and Berlin. No, louder, no, organize, demonstrate. It resulted in two Supreme Court rulings, dozens of books, a musical, and still echoes through the justice system.
It was 1931. The U.S. was in the midst of the Great Depression, and black and white, young and old, were traveling the country looking for work. On one such train, traveling through North Alabama, a group of black and white men got into a fight. And the train was stopped at Paint Rock, and that's when the case began. Dan Carter is a retired professor of history from the University of South Carolina. He wrote a history of the trials called Scottsboro, A Tragedy of the American South, that has become the book about the Scottsboro Boys. He picks up the story. Turned out there were two white young women who were dressed as men, but uh, were traveling on the train. And uh, the older one was terrified they were going to be arrested for crossing the state lines for for, um, illicit purposes. The older woman's name was Victoria Price, and she had worked off and on as a prostitute. Price and her friend, Ruby Bates, worried they would be arrested and charged with vagrancy for riding the train with men. So she knew that she'd be protected if she accused the young men of raping her. And she and her friend, and her name was Victoria Price, and Ruby Bates accused uh, these nine black teenagers of, uh, of raping them. All nine men were immediately arrested. Clarence Norris was the oldest at 19. The youngest, Roy Wright, was only 13. The men were taken to jail in Scottsboro, Alabama. The lynch mob surrounded the jail, but thanks to the local sheriff who called for the National Guard, he managed to protect them. My grandfather was sheriff uh, at the time the Scottsboro Boys incident occurred. That's Billy Wan. His grandfather was Sheriff M.L. Wan. There's a picture that I have here that I can show you. He always wore overalls, and he kept his teeth in his pocket. And when he was going to go and talk to somebody, he would put his teeth in and and go talk. Billy never knew his grandfather, but his father, who was a teenager at the time, told him about that day. This mob had formed, and they had telephone poles that they were going to use as battering rams to open the doors of the jailhouse. Story is told that my grandfather went outside and told the crowd that he would kill the first person that came through the door. And he then uh, took off his gun belt. And he walked out through the crowd, and the crowd parted. No one ever touched him. And he went across the street to the courthouse and called the governor, who then sent the National Guard. And had he not done that, more than likely all nine of those boys would have been lynched. In fact, that had happened only a few months prior in Indiana. Three young black men had been accused of robbery, murder, and rape. A mob broke into the local jail, and two of the men were lynched. The first trial in Scottsboro lasted only three days. The jury returned with a guilty verdict after less than two hours. Eight were sentenced to death. Only the youngest, Roy Wright, was spared. Since he was 13, the court only sentenced him to life in prison. After the first trial, the Scottsboro Boys case was taken over by lawyers from the International Labor Defense, the legal wing of the Communist Party. They appealed the sentences, and for years, the trials bounced back and forth between Alabama and the U.S. Supreme Court. Dan Carter. The United States Supreme Court, in a major decision called Powell versus Alabama, uh, reversed the trial verdict and uh, on the grounds that they had not had adequate counsel, and that was something new. But the trials kept going, 
And in 1935, the second Supreme Court decision, Norris versus Alabama, ruled that the defendants had not been judged by a jury of their peers because there were no black men on the jury. So it was uh, sent back to court, tried again. Once again, the outcomes were the same. In trial after trial, the state of Alabama always found the Scottsboro boys guilty. The trials ended in 1937, when a bizarre political compromise was reached. Alabama released four of the Scottsboro boys. Five were sent to jail, including Norris's father, Clarence Norris Sr. Norris spent 15 years in prison. Twice his head was shaved in preparation for his execution. He said his cell was right close to the death row chamber, and he heard men being executed, you know, he could hear them, and uh, that's powerful. I don't know what that does to a person, you know, to hear someone being put to death and knowing that that has been your sentence handed down to you, that eventually your turn is going to come to be in that chair for something that you didn't do. And the lawyers kept appealing the convictions. Norris was finally granted parole in 1946, and he immediately left Alabama for New York City violating his parole. Eventually, the rest of the Scottsboro boys were paroled or escaped from jail and disappeared. Like Norris, some changed their names and went into hiding in an attempt to escape the infamy of the case. Even though they, uh, they were out of prison, their lives were still, and, and their, their future was still in jeopardy because of the fact that they had broken their parole. In New York, Norris got married and had two daughters. But sometime in the early 70s, he traveled back down to Georgia, where he met Clarence Norris Jr.'s mother. Well, she explained to me that uh, she was at her home at that time, sitting on a porch, and this man walks down the street, and uh, she caught his eye, and he came over, and they started to talk, and it went from there, and uh, they got married. She just told me that one day, he told her where he was going. I think she told me to take care of his mother. And, you know, he never returned. And um, she's pregnant with me. His mother sent her brothers to try and find him, but Norris had disappeared. His son thinks maybe he went back to live with his family in New York, or maybe being near the Alabama state line spooked him. For 30 years, Norris had lived as a fugitive, then finally, in 1976, Alabama Governor George Wallace granted Norris a pardon. This is your pardon, your pardon. Even looking at the, the snippets from that ceremony uh, on YouTube, where Norris is sitting down and, you know, he gets emotional. I have no hate. In the news clip, the camera zooms in on Norris. The years have collected in bags under his eyes. And as he speaks, his eyes fill with tears. And I think all people accused of things which they didn't commit should be free. I wish these other eight boys would around. Norris is the only Scottsboro boy to receive a pardon from the state of Alabama in his lifetime. While down south, Norris visited Dan Carter's history class at Emory University in Atlanta. 
one of the students asked him, um, what what was the worst thing about being in prison for so long for uh, a crime you didn't commit? And I thought he was going to talk about the nightmarish conditions being being in a cell down the just down the hall from where all the executions took place, and he was under sentence of death twice. But he said the worst thing about being prison for that long is you learn to trust no one. You trust no one because anyone will betray you. Clarence Norris Sr. died in 1989, and today, everyone who was a part of the trial is gone. But still, the story of the Scottsboro Boys bleeds into people's lives, sons, daughters, grandsons, and neighbors. This is a picture of Scottsboro, 1931, when the trial happened. Sheila Washington is the founder of the Scottsboro Boys Museum and Cultural Center. She points to a black-and-white photo of a mob of people and pickups packed in front of the Scottsboro Courthouse. It was 1,500 people that lived here. The day of the trial, 10,000 people showed up on the courthouse square. Here's the National Guard marching. They're taking up guns. Uh, people from, from as far away as Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama came to this case to hear this trial. Washington has been collecting pictures and memorabilia about the case for years. And these are the actual keys that went to the jail cell where they were locked up. As a young black woman growing up in Scottsboro, Washington likes to tell the story about when she was a teenager and found an autobiography of one of the Scottsboro boys under her parents' bed. Stepfather didn't want me reading it. Her father snatched the book away, saying, that story is too hurtful. Too much hurtful, harmful things in it. Eventually, Washington read the autobiography, and the convictions of the nine innocent teenagers haunted her. The book became a part of my life. But all nine were dead, their families lost to history. So Washington decided that she would take up the fight to clear their names. Give these young men some respect and dignity. Washington called lawyers and state senators. It took years. But finally, in November of 2013, Washington got what she was pushing for. The governor of Alabama exonerated all nine men and signed the Scottsboro Boys Act. If you can find that somebody in your family members or someone has died and they were innocent, can be forgiven and given a posthumous pardon. Washington is already working on the case of another man she thinks can receive a posthumous pardon under the Scottsboro Boys Act. And according to Dan Carter, in the Jim Crow South of the 1920s and 30s, there were likely thousands of cases where Black men and women were accused and convicted of crimes they did not commit. Essentially, if you were Black and you were accused of certain crimes, and rape was the fundamental one, and you were accused by a white person, you were convicted. <laughs> I mean, there just wasn't any way around it. But proving these cases will be hard. Alabama has the third highest incarceration rate in the nation, and there is a two-year backlog for pardons already. So the new law makes getting a posthumous pardon difficult. The conviction has to be at least 80 years old and requires massive evidence, affidavits, and proof of innocence. Many cases are just too old and forgotten. A posthumous pardon causes people to think about the next case. That's John Miller, a lawyer and professor at the University of Alabama who helped write the Scottsboro Boys Act. I you know, was aware of the case. Having grown up in Alabama, you 
it's part of sort of your mental landscape. You know, it's there. Miller wasn't pleased by all the loopholes. But, he says, the act isn't simply a symbolic feel-good moment for Alabama. Are we going to do better by the next group of people who get brought up on charges when the evidence looks a little thin? and when they come from a background that isn't like that of the people who are sitting in the jury box or the prosecutor uh, sitting across the courtroom from them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Clarence Norris Jr. was the only family member of the Scottsboro Boys to attend the pardoning. And Norris feels responsible for his father's memory and a lack of resolution. While learning about the case, Norris discovered that in 1982, his father had petitioned the state of Alabama for reparations. $10,000 in compensation for wrongful incarceration. When I found out that he had tried, that he had tried my father and failed, I felt like, well, this is something that I need to finish for him. Even though he's not here to benefit from it, um, uh, I feel like they still, when I say they, the state of Alabama still owes him. In Alabama, a wrongful incarceration can be awarded $50,000 for every year of prison. So Norris and his sisters hired a lawyer and filed a case against the state of Alabama for $750,000 in reparations. They are the only family of all nine Scottsboro boys who can be found. States across the U.S. address reparations differently. Alabama is one of only 17 states that have mandated a fixed amount per year of wrongful incarceration. But in Alabama, the process of petitioning for reparations is strict. Only two people have ever received compensation. According to the Alabama Attorney General's Office, the statute of limitations for reparations for Clarence Norris has passed. And even the language of the very Scottsboro Boys Act says that a posthumous pardon cannot be used as evidence that the state owes anyone reparations. Again, Professor Miller. Are these families owed in a, in a moral sense uh, some kind of compensation? Uh, I would say absolutely. Is it hard for them to achieve that uh, with the legal system before them as it is right now? Yes. It will be very, very difficult. Alabama is comfortable with addressing its past. There are museums and monuments to the horrors of Jim Crow and the struggle of the civil rights movement. But when it comes to reparations, Alabama is wary. And according to Osagi Obasagi, a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings, reparations are a crucial step in addressing a dark past. It's easy to say, I'm sorry. It, it, it's a little more difficult when you say, let me d- dig into my pockets and provide some type of financial compensation for my wrongdoing. You know, m- money talks and, and, and money forces a series of conversations um, that, quite frankly, the public needs to have about 
who was harmed, who perpetrated that harm, and the importance of not going back down that path. For states, there are practical arguments against reparations, chiefly money. Alabama, state lawmakers say, is a poor state and simply does not have the money to pay families or victims of injustice. State Senator Arthur Orr championed the Scottsboro Boys Act through the state legislature. Orr says that if the Scottsboro Boys were alive, they should receive reparations. But he questions whether the families of victims deserve compensation. What you do for one, you have to consider doing for others. And so you consider the others out there, and then you get into, you know, you could get wives, of course, children, uh, others that all bring claims. And again, where do where does it end and how can you get past that initial uh, individual that was wrongfully incarcerated? It's a difficult question. A posthumous pardon does nothing for a dead man. It's for the living, the state, and the family. And in fact, Professor Albasagi explains, it's the same with reparations. A reparations is not simply about the victim receiving money, but having the state being held accountable by providing money to the individual or to their families as a symbolic sign that a wrong has been done. And that's, again, the symbolic um, importance of that cannot be overstated because, you know, it does create a precedent to ensure that similar mistakes are not made again. It's been 83 years since the Scottsboro Boys were first convicted of rape and sentenced to death. And the effects of their cases have fanned out like waves. Injustices piggyback on injustices up into the present day, in cases like the Central Park Five and Trayvon Martin. There is still at least a similar treatment of young black men uh, in that they are automatically suspect, that, that the very presence of their bodies somehow um, brings about a kind of um, suspicion. And I think that the echoes of that are still apparent um, in present day as well. So, you know, there is an extent to which dealing with these issues historically is also uh, an attempt to continue conversation about how to deal with them in the present day. This is a conversation that Clarence Norris Jr. very much wants to have. For his whole life, Norris has carried his father's name, not knowing what it meant or who his father was. Now, as he learns more, the past creeps into the present, and some of the weight his father carried becomes his own. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek. This episode of Life of the Law was edited by Anne Hepperman, with sound direction and production by Caitlin Prest. Johnny Ripper composed our music. Life of the Law is a project of the Tide Center and is part of the infinite guest network of podcasts from American Public Media. Take a minute to check out some of the other great podcasts, such as Secret Skin and Reasonably Sound. Go to infiniteguest.com. Distribution of Life of the Law is also made possible by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Life of the Law is funded by the Open Society Foundations, 
the Law and Society Association, and you, our listeners. For more on this story and others on the law in our lives, to subscribe to our podcast, or to make a donation to support production of future podcasts, visit lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Nancy Mullane. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. (laughs) Uh, Think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American married to a Colombian Mexican American and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. (laughs) Uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We're we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. (laughs) Oh, my God. Vamos. Let's do this. As we like to say. 